Morris, who was a New York Times best-selling author, and she wrote about a book. She wrote a book about her experiences living in a monastery. She went and lived in a monastery, and she talked about her experiences there. And while she was in the monastery, the people in the monastery were reading through the book of Jeremiah for their devotions. And she commented this way, Coming unglued seemed to be the point of listening to Jeremiah. Coming unglued seemed to be the point of listening to Jeremiah. The prophet is a witness to a time in which his world meets a violent end and Israel is taken captive. Hearing Jeremiah's words every morning, I soon felt challenged to reflect on the upheavals in our own society and in my life. A prophet's task is to reveal the fault lines hidden beneath the comfortable surface of the worlds we invent for ourselves. The little lies and delusions of control that get us through the day. And Jeremiah does this better than anyone else. When I've been reading through Jeremiah, the picture that I have in my mind is a a person with a big sledgehammer hammering away at a big block of granite. And if you've ever done this, if you ever had the joyful opportunity to do something like that, you realize it's very frustrating because you, you swing the sledgehammer and you, with all your might you hit this block of granite and nothing happens. And so you try it again and then you try it again and you try it again. Just a few little crumbs, you know, come off. And then, you know, you hand the hammer to somebody else who's half your size and they swing and the thing just explodes. And you go, well, what happened? Well, what happened is that you were sort of landing blow after blow, weakening the integrity of the granite, and then just in one blow, it felt like it just all began to sort of crumble. And as I read through Jeremiah, and I think you'll have a similar experience, it's, it's like a hammer blow, just one after another. And the whole theme of the book of Jeremiah is looking at your sin, repenting, and turning back to God. And, and the people in Judah and the people in Israel were very hard people. They were very stubborn people. And it took chapter after chapter and sermon after sermon for them to begin to soften. And in the end, they actually didn't soften. They were destroyed. And so I was discussing about this about, about I was saying this with my kids last night. And I was saying, you know, Jeremiah is 52 chapters of a hammer. And they were kind of like, oh boy, this is going to be a fun, you know, year at Christ Community. And then, you know, Nancy says, but, you know, are we going to have that for 52 weeks? And uh, I said, well, you know, it seemed to me that there was a hardness in the hearts of the people in Judah, and maybe there's a hardness in our, our hearts. And then, you know, Morgan said, yeah, you know, it takes some time to sort of get through to hard hearts. And so I'm praying that Jeremiah, as, as, it's, as he's working on my soul, he's, he's just a hammer blow. And, and maybe today's hammer blow, a little chip comes off, not, not much, but it might be somewhere in the process, something sort of unravels, something falls apart in a healthy way in your life, and your, your heart and your soul is softened to God. So let me pray for us as we begin. Heavenly Father, your, your word is like a hammer. 
And we have hearts of stone that need to be broken up. We have this hard ground that needs to be plowed. And one, one shot, one Sunday morning in April for many of our hard hearts is just not enough. And so we pray that mercifully you'd continue to hammer away and chip away at the hardness of our heart and produce in us a heart of flesh, a healthy soul. In Christ's name, amen. Winston Churchill was best known for being the prime minister in England, sort of the leader figure in England during World War II. But he was also a very colorful speaker, and he's often quoted. And here are some of his more famous quotes. A woman once said to Churchill, Sir, if you were my husband, I would give you poison. To which Churchill replied, Madam, if, you were, if I were your husband, I would take it. <laughs> In describing a man Churchill didn't think much of, Churchill comment, commented, He is a modest man who has much to be modest about. When Churchill uh, was asked what he was writing down, he said, I'm preparing for my impromptu remarks. Churchill said, a lie gets halfway around the world before the truth has a chance to get its pants on. Or, although I'm prepared for martyrdom, I prefer that it be postponed. Churchill is also giving credit for the quote on your bulletin today, those that fail to learn from history are doomed to repeat it. Churchill understood that one of the great values of knowing history was avoiding the repetition of the same mistakes. And, of course, he wasn't the first person to see this value. If you read through the Proverbs, especially Proverbs chapter 4, the, son, the father keeps telling the son, pay attention, listen Grab a hold of this wisdom. He's, he's looking at his young teenage son and he's saying, I want you to see this. I, I want you to understand this. And why? Because he doesn't want his son to repeat the same mistakes that perhaps he made, or at least he saw that other people were making. And so he's giving away a history that would be helpful. The New Testament writers frequently use the Old Testament history to communicate a truth to the early church. For example, in Hebrews chapter 3, the writer of Hebrews is encouraging the Christian church to, to continue to persevere. And he uses the slaves in Egypt in the Exodus as an example, a historical lesson. He says, do you remember that these people were released from slavery and yet they never made it to the promised land? They, they started out so well, but they ended so poorly. Why is that? Because even when they were rescued from their own slavery, even when they got away from the, the prison of Egypt, they still in their heart preferred themselves over persevering after God. And the writer of Hebrews is looking at the early church and saying, it can happen to you. 
what happened to them, it can happen to you. You can start out well. You can get saved from something, but never enter the promised land. Because at your heart, you're still interested in yourself. You're lost in the wilderness of self-interest. And you've given up on really pursuing after God. And so we see Churchill is just an echo of what God already knows. If we fail to learn from history, we will be doomed to repeat it. Jeremiah chapter 3. When you read through this chapter, you see that really the entirety of the chapter expresses a wonder about Judah's inability to learn the lessons of history. I wonder if you ever do this. You read through parts of these Old Testament narratives, and these same people make the same mistake over and over and over again, and you sort of want to shout at your Bible, how stupid can you people be? I mean, this is just the same thing. It's the same lesson, and you, you can't seem to get your hands around it. Why is that? How is that possible? You come into Judges, and the Judges take the people in a Godward direction. As soon as the Judge dies, the people sort of unravel, and another person has to come in. It just happens over and over and over again, and they just don't seem to learn their lesson. Well, before we tackle Judah's dullness, Let's make sure we have the right historical context, because it's easy to forget. Remember, Joshua followed Moses. He led the people into Canaan. And when we led the people and established sort of a kingdom without a king, there were a series of judges that ruled the land. And after a period of time, a king came to power. Samuel was the last judge, and he anointed Saul as the first king. That didn't work out too well, so Samuel anointed another king. That was King David. And then King David was followed by his son Solomon. And at the end of Solomon's reign in 930 B.C., the kingdom was having internal strife, and it split into two, north and south. And so the northern kingdom, which is also called Israel of the ten tribes, the larger, more prosperous area of the country, split off underneath a different leader and is called Israel. And the southern kingdom, the smaller point, the the smaller portion geographically, which contains the city Jerusalem, is called Judah. And you notice here in chapter 3, verse 7, Jeremiah refers to them as sisters. They're like these two sisters. They're watching each other. They should be able to learn lessons from history. You can read in 1 Kings 12 just the lessons from the history of Israel, and if you started there, you would see right at its beginning, there's a serious problem with Israel. It's a serious problem at at its beginning, and it's plaguing Israel all through its life, and that is the once faithful Israel, as Jeremiah has said, has become faithless Israel because she has prostituted herself out to the gods of the land that they lived in. She literally, the people in Israel, literally became prostitutes to the gods of their culture. In the ancient Middle East, what would happen is on high places or hilltops, 
these pagan deities would build some kind of shrine or temple. Some sense of being closer to God. And so you're always looking up and you're seeing the sort of the pagan temple. And literally in these pagan temples, part of the religious practice was to have sex. And so what was happening here, and you see it uh, in this verse, and look in verse 23, when as part of a confession... The people in Israel say, truly the hills are a delusion. See, they've gone up to the hill, they thought they were going to grab hold of life, and it was a delusion. The orgies on the mountain. And it's interesting that when this nation, Israel, lost its connection to its ultimate lover, it's interesting how quickly when God gets lost from a nation, what becomes the very easy substitute for God? Sex. And so sex began to dominate the cultural in Israel because they needed a substitute. They had lost their ultimate connection with their ultimate lover, and when that once went out the door, then they had to look around to try to satisfy themselves in other ways, and so they ran after the substitute. The once beautiful bride now is prostituting herself on every hill. I want us to make sure we have a good picture of what's happening here. Israel, these are the people of God. These are the church-going people. These are the people who come and sing on key. They lift up their hands. They take notes during the sermon. They shake the pastor's hand as they leave and say, Mighty good sermon today, pastor. That's the people that Jeremiah is addressing. These are the people of God. And yet somehow, after that Sunday service, by Monday morning or perhaps even on Sunday, the people of God have left the temple, the real temple, and they've begin to wander from hill to hill looking for a substitute. Right out of the church door into the world and now trying to grab hold of what the world has to offer. God, as you know, if you know your Old Testament history, pleads with His bride for 200 years from 930 B.C. to 722. Please come back. 200 years of the husband saying to the bride, come back, come back, come back. And if you're familiar with the prophet Hosea, who is a prophet to the people of Israel, he's actually going to be a living demonstration. Remember what his call was? You talk about not wanting certain calls. Here's Hosea's call. Hosea chapter 1, verse 2. When the Lord spoke to Israel through Hosea, the Lord said to Hosea, go and marry a prostitute. This will illustrate to the people that they have been untrue to me, openly committing adultery against the Lord by worshiping other gods. Israel had every chance Every visual illustration, every opportunity, 200 years 
of this calling husband to come back, but they're like a runaway freight train. They, they are speeding through every warning light until it comes to a bitter end. Verse 8. Listen, listen and look at the, the painful language here. She saw that for all the adulteries of that faithless one, Israel, after all the adulteries, I sent her away with the decree of divorce. God gets a divorce from his people. That's the lesson from history that Judah is supposed to pick up. But then you continue in that same verse, and what's even more shocking, yet her treacherous sister Judah did not fear, but she too went and played the whore. I mean, how dim can you be, Judah? You're seeing it in your sister. You see what is happening if you turn your back on the living God. If you begin to serve the gods of the culture, you've already seen it. It's already happened. Israel has been defeated. It's been deported. And yet you're following down the same path. They're they're staring their future in the face. They have all the evidence they need to move in a Godward direction. And yet, they see the evidence. It's overwhelming and they still turn away because really they're people after their own heart first before they're after the heart of God. You get that same picture in the New Testament. Remember when the rich young ruler comes up to Jesus, you know, what must I do to enter into the uh, kingdom of heaven, and he looks at the man and says, here's the plan. I mean, I'm going to give it to you as easy as it could possibly be. There, there won't be any hesitation or mistake about what I'm talking about. No parable here. Just go and sell everything you have. Come and follow me. Then you'll have the kingdom. I mean, I wish that was the way that when I prayed, that's the way God worked. Paul, here it's just as cleanly laid out. No, no confusion. And then I read the story and say, well, no, maybe I need some gray area. <laughs> I mean, go sell all you have. Come and follow me. That, that's it. Get all of your attention, rich young ruler, on me. And what's so sad is the man looks at the wealth of this temporary world. He looks at the wealth of eternity in the face. He sees it clearly. He knows something about Christ is different. That's why he's come. He sees him in the face and then he says... Oh, but I can't do it. I just can't let go of these things in the world. And that's exactly what's happening to Israel, or what has happened to Israel, and it's what happened is happening to Judah. And so I got to this point in the sermon, and I just sat at my chair and reflected on Israel, reflected on Judah, and had these thoughts. One, the entire nation of Israel is careening out of control, not because of the condition of their culture. 
the entire nation of Israel is careening out of control, but it's not because of the condition of their culture. It's because of the condition of the church in the culture. The church has left open a huge spiritual vacuum. The people of God were no longer following after God. And so when the people of God began to get married to the culture, then the whole nation began to dissolve. One of the lessons from the history of Israel for Judah and for us is that when God's own people in their morality and lifestyles don't look appreciably different than the culture, then an entire nation is in peril. Let me say that again. When God's people, when they begin to turn away, an entire nation is in peril. You see that in the people of Israel. You see it in Judah. And so I stopped and just wondered about God's people and the condition of the church in America. Number two. Today we don't have temples on hills. You don't go to the high hills and see clearly a temple. But temples are easily accessed on computer screens. Statistics say that 50% of all men, including men in the church, including pastors, have a problem with internet pornography. 50%. And I wondered, how many, how many people come to Christ Community Church, sing the songs, sing on key, occasionally lift up their hands, Take notes during the sermon. Shake the pastor's hand and say, Great sermon, pastor. But as soon as they get out of the door, maybe even by Sunday night, they're roaming around from site to site. They're trying to hang on to something else. They're trying to substitute sexuality for the Savior. I wondered if there would be somebody sitting in the church today who's facing overwhelmingly all the evidence they need to go in the right direction. And they just refuse to go. You know exactly what to do. But you just don't do it. Finally, I wondered, and I stopped my wondering at this point, can God get a divorce? And what does that mean? God gave a decree of divorce to His own people.
Norris. Again, she says this, the point of listening to Jeremiah is to become unglued. The point of listening to Jeremiah is to examine the hidden fault lines you have built your life on. Jeremiah is like a hammer, hammering away at your hard heart and my hard heart, trying to break something up that is killing us as a people, killing us as a nation. And Jeremiah is calling out to Judah, and he is calling out to each of us, turn around, repent, it's not too late. I'm calling to you, calling to you, do you hear my voice? When you look at this chapter, chapter 3 and the beginning of chapter 4, the word repent is used 16 times. Over and over again, he's pleading like this wounded lover, please my bride, please come back. Well, that's really my introduction to my sermon. You notice I didn't have three points. And a few of you are going, oh, hope he's not going to give me the sermon now. That's, that's going to be next week. But I just got to this point and I felt a heaviness of our nation juxtaposed to the nation of Israel, juxtaposed to the nation of Judah. Next week we'll take a look at repentance and the difference between fake repentance and real repentance, which Jeremiah talks about. And then Jeremiah gives this very interesting clue about our ultimate rescue. He points to Christ here in this passage in a very fascinating way. And so we're going to talk about real repentance and our real rescuer next week. But as I thought about concluding, I thought, it's just so easy for me to look at these people in the New Testament or the Old Testament and with a sort of a cultural superiority say, these dumb people, why can't they get it? Over and over and over again, they're told the same things. But the more I worked on the passage, the more the passage began to work on my soul. And God began to point out things. Paul, you're doing the same things. Over and over and over, I tell you, turn around, come back to me. Remember the, the, the Wesley hymn, Prone to Wonder? Lord, I feel it. You feel it. You feel it. As soon as you walk out the door, you don't have to walk out the door. You just feel like the culture is just dragging you, kicking and screaming back into it. So I felt like instead of having the confession before the sermon, it would be helpful to have the confession after the sermon, which is printed in your bulletin. And so we'll read a few lines here together as a prayer and then give you a moment for silent confession. Let's pray this together. Gracious God, help us to learn your lessons from history. 
We confess that we have pursued our own selfish interests over persevering after you. Let's continue. We confess that we have been influenced by the temples of our secular culture and have inexcusably neglected your truth. We have weakened the church and our nation terribly by our own lack of serious repentance. Let's continue. We are blinded to the sins in ourselves, which we so clearly in others. We confess to knowing the truth, staring it in the face, yet walking away from it. We acknowledge our failure to tell others about your saving work in Jesus Christ. Continuing, we ask for your forgiveness and the strength of the Holy Spirit to help us walk in your ways. We cling to your truth. If we confess our sins, you are faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for your word. Jeremiah had a very unenviable task to live as a hammer. To spend 40 years hammering at the same stubborn people. And we are praying, I am praying, Lord, that we would not be stubborn. That the hammer would would fall and we would crumble and confess our sins that we would see our immediate need for you. That, that we wouldn't be so easy to pick on the culture before we looked at the, the sin inside the church. We thank you for your word that exposes the condition of our heart. We thank you for the Holy Spirit that transforms the condition of our heart. Lord, we thank you for the many gifts that you've given us. We've thanked you for the land and the building. We thank you for the money that is given each week for your purposes and your kingdom. We do pray that it would multiply in a way that would bring glory and honor to your name alone. In that name we pray. Amen.